According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me one last time in the book of Leviticus. We are going to conclude Leviticus today. Leviticus 27 and then Numbers chapter 1. This is day 59 in the through, the, uh, through the Bible reading program. Day 59 what uh, is called the first census in uh, the Ron Rhodes uh, devotional, if you're following along that day by day. I will point out, if you missed last hour, then the uh, the reading for day 58 has some issues that you're going to want to be aware of. I colored it red so that I wouldn't miss it as we arrived at day 58. If you work your way through the Ron Rhodes devotional, he makes comment here, and I think a total of five places throughout the devotional, he holds the view that the new covenant is with the church, and that believers today in the body of Christ, believers today in the church, are uh, under the new covenant. And that's not my view, that's not the view of this church, I don't believe that is the best biblical view, but he's not rare in that, it's pretty common actually. So I uh, just want you to be aware of it. When you read it, you can understand it for what it is. Uh, he says, our lives as Christians are centered on the new covenant, an unconditional covenant God made with humankind. And that's just wrong. It's an unconditional covenant that he has yet to make because it will be made after the tribulation. It will be made at the second advent of Jesus Christ, and it will not be made with all humankind. It will be made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And so um, just wanted you to be aware of that. That's in the day 58 reading, and I addressed it at some length last hour. So if you missed it, you can uh, you can go get caught up on that. For today, though, we're dealing with Leviticus 27 and Numbers chapter 1. And before we begin, we'll take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we once again come before you as unworthy, yet made worthy. Thank you, Father, for your grace that saves us and washes us whiter than snow, that causes us to stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that you look upon us and you don't see the vile sinners that we are. You see the beloved Son who purchased us. And Father, it's it's a joy and a delight to stand before you on this day. Thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for the uh, teaching that we have. Thank you for this calendar that we're following, whereby we go from Genesis to Revelation in uh, in this, this powerful year, Father. And as crazy as the world is getting, I'm just so thankful that, that we can be stable, we can be grounded, we can be saturated with truth. And I pray, Father, that that saturation keeps us stable each and every day. We thank you and we praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so like I say, we are wrapping up Leviticus and uh, a couple of weeks uh, that it's taken us to get through this, our second Sunday, really, in uh, in Leviticus. We started on a Tuesday night about two weeks ago, and uh, we're wrapping it up today, moving on to Numbers, which uh, is, uh, I'm not going to tell you where it falls on my favorite book list. Um, Apparently, I have belabored the Leviticus point long enough, and and folks are tired of hearing about it. So I'm not going to tell you about my 65th favorite book. And I'll just say we're going to get into numbers today, and uh, we're going to be here for a couple of weeks before we get into uh, Deuteronomy. 
So let's wrap up Leviticus. The book of Leviticus concludes with a passage concerning vows and service over and above all the legal requirements of the first 26 chapters. And it's really very interesting that this would come uh, almost as an appendix, almost as an attachment at the end of the book, uh, talking about a difficult vow. So again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when a man makes a difficult vow, he shall be valued according to your valuation of persons belonging to the Lord. And so this difficult vow, this is entirely on a free will basis. This is entirely nothing to do with anything that's required or a commandment or a sacrifice or a season. This is just a believer for whatever reason who says, who's, who's appreciative for the grace of God, who maybe wants to commemorate an event or a deliverance or something. And so he dedicates himself or he dedicates his child or he dedicates uh, something, uh, a piece of land or he dedicates an animal. It could be anything. And, and, and very frequently, uh, sometimes we, get, uh, we, get, we lose control of ourselves when we're all emotional and we're getting caught up in a deliverance and we, we promise the sky, if, oh Lord, just get me out of this and you know, I get closer to shore and I'm, I'm promising him half my kingdom. And, uh, but when you make a vow like that, the God of truth holds you to every vow. And if you regret it after the fact, too bad. You said it, you vowed it, and the God of truth is going to hold you to it because that's his nature and you're in the image of God. So if your valuation is uh, of a male from 20 years even to 60 years old, then your valuation shall be 50 shekels of silver after the shekel of the sanctuary. If it is a female, your valuation shall be 30 shekels. Sorry, women, you are discounted. Um. If it be from five years even to 20 years old, then your valuation for the male shall be 20, for the female 10. But if they are from a month even up to five years old, your valuation shall be five shekels of silver for the male. For the female, your valuation shall be three shekels of silver. If they are from 60 years old and upward, you get the discount here. Uh, It is a male, your valuation shall be 15 shekels for the female 10 shekels. But if he is poorer than your valuation, then he shall be placed before the priest. The priest shall value him according to the means of the one who vowed. The priest shall value him. All right. Now this is a little bit awkward for us too because uh, we don't live, uh, we don't have slavery in our culture and the idea that a person is going to be valued on an equivalent basis as if he was a slave and the kind of labor that he could provide on behalf of the priests or on behalf of the Levites the kind of financial gift that could be offered to ransom him from the vow. And uh, in other words, so instead of serving for whatever period of time, you can give a, a ransom instead based upon the valuation of things. Anyway, we have, um, we have these things here. All right, the difficult vow. The Hebrew verb is nadir, and uh, there's a corresponding cognate noun that's the nader, the vow or the votive offering. And then the adjective pala that speaks about how difficult this is, beyond one's power. When it's used of God, it refers to an activity that is marvelous or wonderful. Such God things are, of course, beyond human ability and thus difficult or practically impossible. And this is what happens when we make vows that we can't keep. We write checks we can't cash. We, we're human beings that are finite. And, uh, of course, with God, all things are possible. Believers may become overwhelmingly appreciative for the Lord's service, may desire to sacrifice and serve Him with a greater capacity than is typically observed. And an example for this in Luke chapter 7, you know, when how did a person end up with all of that billions of dollars worth of debt? 
The moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, the other 50. Which one loved him the more? Well, the one that was forgiven more, okay? We have other parables too where Jesus talks about a slave who can't forgive his fellow slave for this minuscule little debt when he himself has, uh, you know, basically uh, the gross national product of his nation uh, to, his, <laughs> to, his, to his debt limit. Such vows are not to be taken lightly. And the believer is better off not making any such vows at all. Because if you do, if you overshoot, if you, if you bite off more than you can chew, um, God holds you to it. Unless, we're going to see when we get into the book of Numbers, there is a blessing for daughters. There's a blessing for, uh, for uh, unmarried daughters in their father's house that carries across to a married woman in her husband's house. There is a protection against rash vows that's provided there. Not for the men, though. Not here in, in Leviticus and not in Numbers, not no, nowhere is a man bailed out from something that he had stated and that he, he, the Lord holds him to it. Okay, Think about the, the judge uh, who, who offered, the, he said, the first thing that comes out my door, and it was his daughter. It was his daughter that met him after the victory and he had offered to sacrifice. And, and think about that he's accountable. He's accountable before the Lord. So we have uh, good illustrations of this chapter elsewhere in the Bible. Such vows for the Lord's service could be of people, animals, houses, or fields. You may just decide that uh, you know, you're so thankful for God's service that um, you want to donate uh, a purple Dodge Charger or you know, just whatever and say, it's the love of my life, but the church can use this more than I can. And, and so whatever the case is, you take, you take what is otherwise dear to you and you offer it for the Lord's glory, for the Lord's service as the case may be. Certain people or things could not be devoted to the Lord's service, and this gets a little shady when people are trying to weasel out of certain things. Things that belong to the Lord anyway. What kind of sacrifice is that? That's not a free will offering. It's not a votive offering. It belongs to the Lord anyway. So it says in verse 26, a firstborn among animals, which is a firstborn, belongs to the Lord. No man may consecrate it, whether ox or sheep. It is the Lord's. So, you know, if, if you're trying to weasel out of something and give God something he's already entitled to anyway, well, then that's not a free will offering. That's not what this chapter is dealing with. But if it is among the unclean animals, then he shall redeem it according to your valuation and add to it one-fifth of it. And if it is not redeemed, then it shall be sold according to your valuation. All right, we've got a few other requirements here. Let me get down through 28 and 29. Nevertheless, anything which a man sets apart to the Lord out of all that he has of man or animal or the fields of his own property shall not be sold or redeemed. Anything devoted to destruction is most holy to the Lord. So there are, when, we, when they get into the conquest, we're going to see a term called uh, the ban or devoted to the destruction, placed under the ban which means it's not your plunder, it's not your wealth. God wants all of it. He wants all of it consumed. And uh, so you can't take something devoted to destruction and, and give it to God as if it's a free will offering. It's not. No one who may have uh, been set apart among men shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. So this is point six in the outline. Certain people and things should not be devoted to the Lord's service. Items under the ban, for example, or condemned men to be cut off. Uh, that's already been dealt with judicially. That's already got its own destiny. And, and if you think you can maybe escape that, 
<laughs> that you can barter for your life and just cling to the altar or something or, or dedicate your life to, to temple service if, if only you know, God doesn't cut you off or strike you dead. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's not uh, men that are condemned to be cut off are not uh, eligible to become a votive offering as unto the Lord. Also, think about um, Samuel. There's another good example. Remember, Hannah was praying for a baby boy, and then she had vowed to the Lord that that if he gave her the son that she was praying for, that he would be dedicated, that he would be given to temple service. And, and, and so that's what she did. She birthed the boy, she weaned him for however many weeks she did, or months, whatever. She weaned the, the child and then took Samuel to, uh, to the high priest and he entered into priestly service for the rest of his life. That's what these dedicated vows are dealing with. Items that belong to the Lord in the first place like the, uh, the firstborn animal or anything else that belongs to the Lord in the first place. And if you think that it's just unthinkable, who would do this? Who would, who would try to game the system or who would try to manipulate things for personal advantage all in the guise of, of religion? Well, trust me, it happens a lot. And it happened in the life of Christ and he rebuked the Pharisees for it. He rebuked the Pharisees because they were violating the law for the sake of their traditions. Uh, and Jesus said, you're supposed to be honoring your father and mother, and instead you found that the korban dedications uh, were allowing you to avoid the, uh, the support of your parents. And so they were using their, their, their holy dedicated offerings as a way to not uh, support their, their elderly in their generation, and Jesus nailed them for that. All right. Point seven, the tithe is something that belongs to the Lord in the first place. I don't think that you can, you can uh, get credit for giving a tithe as if it was a free will offering. It's not. There's the have-tos. When, when you have a, a votive offering, a free will offering, it's above and beyond. It is, it is beyond anything else. See? You don't just take it out of what you have to give anyway or what you normally would give anyway. See? We do something similar as well when we support missionary travels or special uh, things and whatnot. We say, here's a Here's a need, and this is a need, and, and, but this is a need that's above and beyond, right? We don't, we don't want everybody in the church slashing their, their normal giving just to support this one thing, and then the whole ministry is off budget for other things as they go on. No, the free will offerings are above and beyond the tithe for the nation of Israel. I did not misspeak. We're not under the tithe. If anyone thinks we're under the tithe, we're not. We're our church-age believers. We don't tithe anyway. But when we do give, it's always by grace. And when we give above and beyond, it's always above and beyond, never in place of. That's what I'm trying to say. All right. One of these days I'm going to get a uh, communication spiritual gift that's going to help me to uh, speak these things more, more clearly. All right, let's look at verses 30 and following here. Um, Thus, all the tithe of the land, of the seed of the land, or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is most holy to the Lord. If therefore a man wishes to redeem part of his tithe, he shall add to it one-fifth of it. There is a one-fifth premium that we've seen in a variety of other applications, including the guilt offering has a one-fifth um, bonus that gets uh, a surcharge, it gets added on top. And uh, we, see, we see this here as well. For every tenth part of the herd or flock, whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. He is not to be concerned whether it is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it. If he does exchange it, then both it and its substitute shall become holy. It shall not be redeemed. 
All right, so it's not eligible for this uh, votive offering. So the tithe is something that belongs to the Lord in the first place. You don't use it as a part of your votive offerings. One-tenth of the increase was given to the Lord. An agricultural economy includes crops and livestock. Abraham and Jacob understood the principle of the tithe, but the Mosaic law requirements are going to be developed, and we're going to see them developed really extensively in Numbers and Deuteronomy. So we have a little hint of it here, but we'll have the, the larger uh, legislation that comes in Numbers and Deuteronomy. So stay tuned for that. All right, so now do we breathe a sigh of relief? Do we breathe a sigh of relief because we turn flip the page from Leviticus to Numbers? Okay, not so fast. All right. Um, because many of the elements that make Leviticus difficult are still present in the book of Numbers. Okay, so it's, uh, it continues to have um, a difficulty in terms of our culture, in terms of our separation in time and culture. Um, whereas in Leviticus, most of the information pertained to the priesthood, to their, to their sacrifices, the animal ritual, and the, the functions and the operations of the tabernacle. Numbers still has all of the awkwardness that Leviticus has, but it turns it away from the, the priests and starts to address the, the people, starts to address specifically the military formations, the battle arrangements that they have, and the other, uh, the other circumstances for life in the wilderness, all right? For how do they function as a camp, and how do they function on the march, and how do they function along the way when the spies are sent out? And all these things that happen, they happen in the book of Numbers, which uh, otherwise in the in the Hebrew is called in the wilderness. Okay, Bamidbar is the Hebrew title. It's uh, it's the Septuagint title through the the Vulgate where we end up with arithmoi. We end up with numbers or math. Okay, this is the this is the book of math. So <laughs> if you aren't into numbers, this chapter won't be for you. Just warning you now. But I want to address this, and there's a lot of things here too that I that I find useful. And uh, I'll, I'll show you what I mean as we, as we get to it now, okay? So the Lord commanded Moses to enroll the muster of the nation of Israel, structuring the nation's fighting capacity. If you keep that in mind, the rest of the chapter gets easier, as well as chapter 26, when we do it all over again. There are two censuses that are taken in the book of Numbers, the early census and the late census. And we call them censuses because they get translated with the word census, and they get put as pericope headings in, in our published Bibles. And you, you have to be a moron to not call it a census. Why would you call it a military muster instead of a census? Okay, well, the, let the moron explain and we'll see if, if it makes sense. Okay, we're going to make sense out of the census and, and demonstrate that it's not a population count at all. It is a military structuring it is an order of march. It is a T-O-N-E, if you know that phrase, from uh, the, the, uh, the table of order and equipment. The chapter here doesn't give us much in the way of equipment, but it does give us the table of order. It tells us about the troop levels. It tells us about the fighting capacity of these tribes. So let's take a look at it. Verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting. And, and you see, it's the same setting for the closing of Leviticus. These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the sons of Israel at Mount Sinai. The content of Leviticus was received at Mount Sinai, like everything else. It was received there in the law. And then however, whatever length of time it took Moses to write it all down, okay, he had a whole year to work with while the, the builders were building the tabernacle. 
clearly. It was given at Sinai and Moses wrote it down. And if you believe the Bible, this is a no-brainer. You've got to be a, a, a seminary credentialed theological liberal to think that Israel was illiterate until they got to their Babylonian captivity. It was only after the Babylonian captivity that they learned how to read and write. Okay? And that's just insane. They were very literate in the, uh, even while they were in Egypt, they were very literate. And we're going to prove that here uh, in the book of Numbers. All right. So in the same setting, in the same setting for receiving the content of, I mean, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, they were all written in the same, by Moses, on this, uh, the event of their Exodus and their wilderness wanderings. Specifically this first year while they were at Sinai. So, uh, finally, it's going to be this book that's going to get us to the next generation. It's going to get us to Mount Pisgah when they're looking over the land and ready to conquer. That all happens here in the book of Numbers. All right, so in the tent of meeting on the first of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the, tent, uh, the land of Egypt, saying, take a census, take a count, take a sum. Literally it means a sum. So take a sum of all the congregation of the sons of Israel. But now notice by their families, by their father's households, according to the number of names, every male, head by head, from 20 years old and upward, whoever is able to go out to war in Israel, you and Aaron shall sum them or number them by their armies. So a couple of things we've got to recognize here. This is not a civilian census. This is not tracking the number of women. This is not tracking the number of children. This is not tracking the elderly. Women, children, and elderly in the Hebrew, they're all called taf. Taf. It's a, it's a descriptive term that means non-combatant. All right? Unless that's the women, the children, and the, and the old people. The able-bodied men, like what we're seeing today in the news. You know, uh, Ukraine put it out there. Any man from 14 to 60 will be denied the, uh, the exit from Ukraine. You've got to stay there and, and fight for your country. That's what they've, they've decreed. But the TAF can, uh, can cross into Poland or Hungary or Romania or wherever, Slovakia, wherever it is that they're going. So again, even though the word census is in there in the English translation, it's really, it's a sum. It's really, it is a total. And it's not just a raw total, we're not looking for a great big number of the whole. We're looking for all of the component subtotals. We're looking for the breakdown in the organization. This is like James Randall in one of his spreadsheets. This has all of the classifications that are, that are stipulated by tribe, by clan, by family, by household. All right. Again, I would highlight these things for you um, so that you can see. Um, head by head, from 20 years old and upward, whoever is able to go out to war. Okay, this is a military muster. And it's a muster that's structured by tribes, clans, families, and households of the fighting men. With you, moreover, there shall be a man of each tribe, each one head of his father's household. So Moses and Aaron are going to lead this endeavor. They're, they're the executives at the top of this muster, but they're including the tribal chiefs as well. There should be a man of each tribe. And so um, the, the tribal chiefs themselves become participatory in this muster. So in the subpoints uh, in the left on the notes there, this is not a civilian census. 
Uh, this is not tallying women and children or non-combatants. The muster was taken by tribes, clans, families, and households. The muster specifically enumerated fighting men from 20 years of age and upward. Able-bodied men able to go to war. Moses and Aaron were to conduct this muster with the committee of 12 tribal leaders. Um, we're going to have their names that are going to be given here shortly, verses 4 through 19. We actually studied them briefly last week when we were taking a glimpse on uh, uh, Numbers chapter 7. That was back in the day 48 reading, you might remember, um, just a few days ago, when uh, these tribal chiefs came with offerings, and each one brought a free will offering, and they all brought the same thing, okay? And we went through that chapter. So, this muster. Now, the muster figures are widely divergent based upon the usages of Eleph and Maoth. I'm going to teach you two Hebrew words this morning. The first word is Eleph, the second word is Maoth. And depending on how we understand these expressions, it widely affects the translation. And this isn't just the translation from Hebrew to English, or the translation to the Septuagint Greek. This is actually the translation within the Hebrew itself over the years that the Hebrew manuscripts have been copied. This is a translation that the Hebrews themselves struggled with when they were um, changing their alphabet over from the Proto-Hebrew text over to the Aramaic block script. And so when they came back from their captivity and they had rewritten all of their text into the Aramaic block script, some of that translation lost some detail as well, including the understanding of these Elephim and these Maoth. That these Elephim and these Maoth are thought of as numbers, but they are actually military units. And we'll demonstrate that for you here today as well. So, the muster is widely divergent based upon the usage of Eleph and Maoth. The word Eleph can mean thousand. It can also mean cattle. It can also mean chief. It can also mean uh, a military unit like we would think of as a battalion, a unit that would have up to a thousand troops, for example. And a mayoth could be a hundred, or it could be a military unit that's comprised of up to a hundred soldiers, like a company. All right? So we have battalions and we have companies. We have military units that are being spoken of here. And this is, biblically, this is how it's used. I'll demonstrate that for you as well. All right. So take a man of each tribe, each one the head of his father's household. These then are the names of the men who shall stand with you. These are the chairmen of the, what we would call the draft board. Okay? or the military muster committee. And so the tribe of Reuben has Eleazar, the son of Shadur. Simeon has Shalumio, the son of Zerushadai. Judah has Nashon, of the son, uh, uh, the son of Aminadab. He's probably the one that we know the best because we know the lineage through Judah when we're memorizing the line of Christ and when we're learning about the, uh, the different heroes from Judah. Issachar, you have Nethanel, the son of Zuar, of Zebulun, you have Eliab, the son of Helon, of the sons of Joseph. Notice they're still stipulated as sons of Joseph, even though they are full tribes. You have of Ephraim, the chief is Elishama, the son of Amahud. Manasseh has Gamaliel, the son of Pedazur. Keep in mind, it's not important today, but the order of Ephraim and Manasseh is going to get mixed up when we get into chapter 26 at the second census. Just stay tuned for that. Of Benjamin, the chief is Abidan, the son of Gideoni, of Dan, Ahiezer, 
the son of Amishadai, of Asher, it's Pagiel, the son of Akron, of Gad, Eliasaf, the son of Duel, and then Naphtali. The final tribe is Naphtali, and the chief is Ahira, the son of Enan. These are they who are called of the congregation, the leaders of their father's tribes. They were the heads of division of the divisions of Israel. The heads of the divisions of Israel. Okay? Pay attention to that, because that's your Eleph right there. This is the term that gets debated. Do we take this as a number? And some people want to insist it always, always, always has to be a number no matter what. Except for the cases where it clearly can't be. Okay? And in the cases where it clearly can't be, then we'll, we'll allow it to be something else. Like divisions of Israel. These were the heads of the thousands of Israel. These were the heads of the battalions of Israel. I have no problem taking this number as a military unit because this is a military muster. And the, or, and, the, and the forces are being structured in their military units by their tribes, by their clans, by their families. This is normal in the ancient world. All right, so Moses and Aaron took these men who had been designated by name and they assembled all the congregation together on the first of the second month. And they registered by ancestry in their families, by their father's households, according to the number of names from 20 years old and upward, head by head. Now, why does it matter? Why don't they just lump them all together in, in, uh, in, in the army, just draft them and send them to boot camp and be done with it? Because that's not how the nation is structured. That's not how their army is going to be structured. I think um, we'll see more of this in the book of Judges when various tribes are afflicted and the various tribes have to defend their tribal territories as opposed to just calling out a national army to, to uh, defend the national borders. That's not how they're structured. They're structured as a federation of 12 tribes, each tribe with their own prince, each tribe with their own militia, their own armed forces. That together, the 12 tribes make up the overall hosts of, uh, of the armies of Israel. So they get registered by ancestry in their families, by their father's household, according to the number of names from 20 years old and upward, head by head. Just as the Lord commanded Moses, so he numbered them in the wilderness of Sinai. So we have the numbers. Now, the numbers that you read about in your text, in your paper Bibles, okay, um, or even in your electronic text in Logos, the, uh, the numbers that we're looking at here, um, they're, they're huge numbers, okay? I call them humongous numbers. And um, so, for example, you can spot Reuben, 46,500. Simeon, 59,300. You've got 12 of these humongous numbers. And when we get to the end, you add up 12 humongous numbers and you get one extra humongous number. Down in verse 46, you get 603,550. And I had mentioned this back in the Exodus, in, in Exodus chapter 12, because there was a number of the sons of Israel that had marched forth from Ramses. And it was a number of 600,000. And I said, pay attention to that, because it's 600 Eleph that marched forth. And if we understand the Eleph to be a number, then that's 600,000. If we understand the Eleph to be a division like how it's translated here, where it's translated divisions. 
Okay. We're not just making up something because we don't like the numbers. We're handling the numbers because we need to handle the numbers. Because the Bible has to be true to itself. Not because we're afraid uh, that, that God can't feed three million Jews in the desert. Okay. Um, God can feed three billion Jews in the desert if he wants to. That's not an issue. Why do we handle these numbers differently? Why are we taking Eleph as a division or as a battalion instead of, or as a chief instead of as, uh, as a as literal number, as a numerical number? And here's why. The muster figures are widely divergent based upon the usages of Eleph and Maoth. Biblical considerations must focus on the text itself and not on speculation. So here we go. Here's a point of evidence to consider. In, uh, in Numbers chapter 3, we're going to find out about the number of firstborn males. All the firstborn males by the number of names from a month old and upward for their numbered men were 22,273. That's how many firstborn males that are counted. Now, the ratio of adult males to firstborn males, roughly 27 to 1. Do you think that's a problem? If you have 600,000 men ready to go to war, if we, if we accept the humongous number as appropriate, then we've got 600,000 adult men ready to go to war. But the number of firstborn males is only 22,273. That's tiny. You end up with a, a ratio of adult males to firstborn males roughly 27 to 1. In other words, an average family consisted of 27 sons and presumably an equal number of daughters. The average mother must have had more than 50 children. Okay? I'll let you catch your breath there. Some women are freaking out. Now, again, I am not saying that this might not be true. God is capable, if he wanted, God could have given every Jewish woman in, the, in Israel 50 kids or more, so that when they walked through the Red Sea, they were indeed. Or maybe the Bible itself is telling us we should do something different with these numbers that might not be numbers. With these numbers that might be chiefs and military units. Okay, And this is only one point of evidence I've covered so far. Let's, there, wait, there's more. There are other texts acknowledging too few Israelites to occupy the land all at once. We already read Exodus 23, verses 29 and 30. He says, I will not, when talking about conquering the land, he says, I will not drive them out before you in a single year, that the land may not become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. That's a passage that seems to indicate a much smaller population of the Jewish people. That if they, if they moved in and completely conquered in one single year, then they wouldn't have a population base capable of, of running the land, of, of, of living in the country. It just seems to speak of a smaller number. Likewise, Deuteronomy 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you. Remember these guys? The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. We've got to memorize that someday. We've got to get our ites in, in order. But notice... Seven nations greater and stronger than you. That means if we accept that, that Israel can field an army of 600,000 soldiers, 
that all seven of these people groups also can field larger armies. They have a larger population base. The smallest of those seven is greater than Israel. If all seven of them are greater and mightier than you. Okay? And try to defend that archaeologically, you can't. Okay? I mean, Egypt didn't put forth 600,000 soldiers. Egypt put forth, in fact, 200 years after this event, Egypt sent 25,000 troops to the Battle of of, uh, Kadesh. All right. Seven nations greater and stronger than you. Down to verse 6. Yeah, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Not because you were more numerous. You see verse 7 there? He didn't set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Well, that gets my attention. So I have to reconcile every verse with every other verse. This is a verse that tells me that they were a small people group. But then I've got numbers one that seems to think that they have 600,000 soldiers under arms. I have to reconcile that. And to me, the best way to reconcile that is to go with the smaller numbers in Numbers chapter 1 and Numbers chapter 26. To go with the military muster as not counting troops, but counting chiefs and their units. We also have uh, verse 22 of the same chapter there that talks about them being few. The Lord will clear away these nations before you little by little. You will not be able to put an end to them quickly, for the wild beasts would grow too numerous for you. Well, not if they have 600,000 soldiers and a population of 3 million. They could, they could easily swamp that land and, and the seven nations that they're dispossessing. Other texts show much smaller fighting forces, like Joshua 7.5. The men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men and pursued them from the gate. You know, the loss of 36 men as far as Shabarim, and struck them down on the descent so the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Oh my goodness, we lost 36 men. This is like the end of the world. You've got 600,000. Come on, what's the big deal? Have you ever played Risk? Have you ever played Access and Allies? Just, you know, throw another 100,000 at them and who cares? You can take all the losses you need because you've got hundreds of thousands more. But the idea that 36 of them is is a tragedy is a military defeat that causes them to wail. And it points to a smaller census than I think the traditional numbers. 600 men armed with the weapons of war. There's also talking about uh, an ambush that they're going to set. They're going to set an ambush with 30,000 men. I don't think so. But 30 chiefs, 30 commandos, they can set an ambush. All right. So just so I'm clear, I have no concerns for God's capacity to feed millions of people or any other such logistical concerns. I'm not choosing the smaller numbers because I have a smaller faith and I think that somehow God couldn't bring three million Jews out of the Red Sea in one night. Okay? If he wanted, he could bring three billion Jews through the Red Sea in one night. God can do anything he wants to do. He could feed three billion Jews in the wilderness with manna. Okay? It's not an issue of what God can do. It's an issue of what does the text say? And what does the text say if we harmonize it with every other text? And if every other text is pointing to a smaller population, then maybe this text 
has been misread all this time and we need to readjust how we read it. We need to reconstruct. And instead of counting them as thousands and hundreds, we need to count them as chiefs and their units. And then I think it gets a lot simpler. Actually, then it it actually harmonizes amazingly well. So that's what we're going to do. Another point. I still have E and F, by the way. Have I sold you yet? I was convinced with A, and then B convinced me even more, and C convinced me even more. Um, Curious mathematical observations. The hundreds figures are all in the 200, 300, 400, 500, 600, 700 ranges. They're all in that set. We never have a 000, a 100, an 800, or a 900. We never. So when you're looking at these numbers of, of, just scan down the page, 46, 500, uh, 59, 300, 45, 650, that's the odd duck that has a 50, uh, 74, 600, 54, 400, 57, 400, 40, 500, 32,200. So as you, as you glance down that list, you never have a 100, an 800, or a 900, or a 000, where there's just the thousands are even. Okay? Which you would expect. You would need to. In fact, astronomically, statistically, mathematically, this is not possible if it's random. This is the kind of thing a statistician looks at and says, there's fraud here, there's something that's being manipulated. This, if this was purely random, then we would have, at least one of these 12 tribes would have a, a 000 or a 100 or an 800 or a 900. The fact that every one of these is in the 2 to, to 7 range shows you that something intentional is happening. There is an intentional a mindful process that's organizing and structuring these battalions. And they never have a battalion that's too large, and they never have a battalion that's too small, they never have a company that's too small. Because they're ordering these in a military formation. Perhaps the hundreds aren't numbers either, but rather battle units or companies referred to as hundreds. A descriptive rather than a strictly numeric term. That's what we're going to conclude. That the Elif and the Maoth are descriptive rather than numeric. Taking the Elif and the Maoth numerically results in humongous numbers. Taking them descriptively as chiefs and their battle units results in a more reasonable understanding of Israel's wartime table of organization. That's what we're seeing here. In Numbers chapter 1, they are getting ordered for battle. And they are marching forth in their camps for battle. So when we look at verses 20 through 46, I have in your notes, prepared for you, a reconstructed T-O-N-E. A reconstructed table of organization and equipment. That's language we use in the... I don't know if the Navy uses the same thing. I, I meant to run this past the Navy, guys. I'm using Army language. Each LF, each chief, is a captain. And biblically speaking, we have this everywhere through the Old Testament, especially here in Numbers, especially throughout um, Moses' writing. They're called captains of hundreds, captains of thousands, captains of fifties. They're the captains, they're the chiefs, they're the officers. Think of them as the commissioned officers. Each LF is a captain of a thousand or a hundred, or even a fifty or a ten. We have this phrase, uh, Numbers 31:48. The officers who were over the thousands of the army, the captains of thousands and captains of hundreds approached Moses. We see two tiers of commanders. Call them your colonels and your captains if you want to. 
You have the colonels that are over the battalions. They're the, they're the ones that are over the thousands. And then the captains are the ones that are over the companies as far as this organization is structured. And if you think this is insane, do you know what the modern Israeli army calls their colonels? Aleph. This term Aleph is a reference to the colonels in the, the modern Israeli military. But you see the officers who were over the thousands of the army, the captains of the thousands, the captains of the hundreds, they approach Moses and they have talking about their military muster. Likewise in Deuteronomy 1, I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and I appointed them heads over you, leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, leaders of fifties, and leaders of tens, in officers for your tribes. So that even beyond the census that we have, even beyond the military muster that we have in this chapter, once they do field this army, each of these companies is also going to break down into platoons or squads. And they're going to have subdivisions of, of commanders over fifties, commanders over tens. So we have the examples there. All right. So now depending on how the tribes structured their maoth, there are going to be two to three chiefs for every company, with companies likely grouped into battalions. So here's the thing. Let, let me get to this first of these numbers here. This is Reuben. And you'll see what we're talking about. The numbered men of the tribe of Reuben were, and then the, the Hebrew manuscript doesn't have Arabic numerals like that. It doesn't just say 46,500. Okay? It talks about the number of Aleph, and the number of maoth every single time. And the text is going to be pretty redundant in this. It's going to change the, uh, the terms. But you're going to see here's the elef and here's the maoth. And every one of these verses is going to have those exactly. And they're going to have a figure that's going to talk about the number of elef and then a number of figure which is numeric, that talks about the number of maoth. And this is the pattern. So you have a certain number of elef and you have a certain number of maoth. A certain number of chiefs and a certain number of military battle units, fighting units. And it always works out. It always works out when you reconstruct it on this way to have between two and three chiefs for every battle unit. That's true for the larger tribes, that's true for the smaller tribes, that's true across the board. Two or three chiefs for every battle unit. I'll give you some uh, footnotes and some sources too if you want to read some of the journals and the uh, academic sources where, where I learned all this stuff. Two to three chiefs for every company, with companies likely grouped into battalions. All right, so Reuben... Instead of 46,500, what we really have is 45 Elufim, 45 chiefs, and 15 Maoth, 15 battle units. 45 chiefs, 15 battle units, i.e. two battalions, with eight and seven companies each. That's a way to read the text. That's gr- grammatically consistent. That's fair to the language that takes the Eleph and the Maoth as descriptive terms rather than as numeric terms. So that's the tribe of Reuben. 45 chiefs, 15 battle units. This too, by the way, helps to resolve some of the concerns. Some of the tribes have more battle units but fewer chiefs. Some have more chiefs and fewer battle units. But it still falls within that two to three ratio where you have two or three chiefs for every battle unit. The sons of Simeon, verse 23, 57 Elohims. They got more chiefs. 
23 battle units or companies. They have more mayoth. You could take those mayoth, and this is where your extra officers come in handy. See, if Reuben was combined into two battalions, now you need a battalion officer as well as your company officers. Likewise with Simeon, you can actually structure these 23 uh, companies into three battalions. You can have a battalion of eight, a battalion of eight, and a battalion of seven. And that would be your 23 companies. And you could structure them, you could staff them with the, the amount of elephim that you need. The, the number of captains and, and colonels that you need for these uh, battalions and for these companies. Because you've got 57 to spread about those 23 companies and three battalions. Gad. Gad's the odd duck. Gad is the tribe that has an off number, does, has, a, has a 50, uh, is not an even number of Maoth. So when we read Gad, the sons of Gad, their genealogical registration by their families, by their father's households, according to the number of names from 20 years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war, their numbered men of the tribe of Gad, if you want the humongous number, 45,650, or 44 Elufim, 16.5, 16.5 half companies, or battle units. I'm going to keep using companies. I, I was in companies in my army career. I was also in a battery once, which was hilarious. A battery is what uh, you call a, an anti-aircraft company. It's called a battery. Made me laugh. All right. 44 Elfim, 16.5 Mayoth, so i.e. two battalions with eight and eight and a half companies. Judah, here's the biggest one. The biggest in terms of chiefs, second biggest in terms of Mayoth, 72 Elofim, 72 chiefs with 26 Mayoth. 72 with 26 Mayoth. And by the way, you can kind of see this with the cardinal numbers, right? With the 74,600. If you take off 74, or if you take off 72,000, what do you have left over? 26 hundreds. 26 of the Mayoth, of the companies, of the hundreds. So, Different, you know, we have different phrases, and I know army and navy, we have different terms, but the idea of a company historically has been called a hundred, just because that's the number of men. Think about a centurion. A centurion was an officer over, yeah, they tended to have roughly 80 on average, but they still called them centuries, okay? Or a cohort. Or um, in, in all of these, uh, we have, biblically, we have officers that are called kiliarchs, commanders of a thousand. And you know how the, the Kiliarch in Greek, you know what that's a translation of? The translation of Aleph from the Hebrew. So we have our colonels and we have our captains. All right, so Judah has 72 chiefs, 26 companies. They could be structured into three battalions of nine, nine, and eight. In fact, they have the heaviest of all the battalions. Now, this, uh, only Judah and Dan have battalions with nine uh, with more than eight companies. Issachar, 52 chiefs and 24 companies. In other words, three battalions with eight, eight, and eight. Zebulun, 55 chiefs and 24 companies. Three battalions with eight, eight, and eight. So keeping the companies, keeping every battalion with less than 10 companies is important. That, that helps you to, to structure your, your battalions appropriately. 
gives you the right ratio of chiefs to maoth, of, of Elephim to maoth. And this is part of the, uh, the structure here. All right, Zebulun, 55 chiefs, 3 battalions, 8, 8, and 8. Joseph, Ephraim is the larger tribe. That's going to be mixed up in chapter 26. But for today, Ephraim is the larger tribe. 39 chiefs, 15 maoth. 2 battalions with 8 and 7 companies. Manasseh, 31 chiefs, 12 maoth, 12 companies, 12 battle units. 2 battalions, 6 and 6. These are the smallest of the battalions. 6 and 6. Benjamin, 34 chiefs, 14 companies, 2 battalions of 7 and 7. Dan, now Dan has a smaller number of chiefs than uh, Judah. Judah has 72. Dan only has 60 chiefs, but notice Dan has 27 maoth. 27 companies, infantry companies, under Dan's command. That's three battalions of nine, nine, and nine. That's the largest uh, force, even larger than Judah. Asher, 40 chiefs, 15 companies, two battalions of eight and seven. Naphtali, 51 chiefs, 24 companies, three battalions, eight, eight, and eight. So the reconstructed T-O-N-E, when we get down to the totals here, instead of just adding up the the raw numbers and coming up with 603,550, there's a total of 580 chiefs, 580 Elohim, 235.5 Maoth, companies, battle units. Those 235 companies are structured into 30 battalions. Most of them are 7 and 8. Most battalions are comprised of, comp- of 7 or 8 companies. Only the, 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 the two largest ones that have 9 companies or Manasseh. Manasseh is the only tribe that fields battalions as small as 6 and 6. Tribal ranges everywhere from 31 to 72 in terms of their chiefs. Uh, from 12 on the small side to 27 in terms of their battle units. In other words, between one and three battalions, I'm sorry, between two and three battalions. There's not a single tribe that has less than two battalions. And there's not a tribe that has more than three battalions. Two to three battalions with usually seven or eight companies per battalion. Okay, The small battalions, Manasseh has six and six. The big battalions like Judah and Dan have nine companies per battalion. Those are the heavy battalions. And what do you have? When they're structured, when they're, when they're sent out on, uh, on the order of march, Judah leads the way. And who's the rear guard? Okay, It's interesting how God structured his, uh, his road march on this. So there's your ranges, there's your largest of Judah and uh, Dan. You have to combine the two in Joseph to get something comparable to Judah and Dan. The smallest are Asher, Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Finally, as the chapter closes, we see that the Levites were exempted from the muster. The Levites, however, were not numbered among them by their father's tribe because they're not going to war. You know, the chaplain doesn't take up arms. (laughs) The chaplain's aide has to be his bodyguard and, and protect him. Levi is not going to war. The Lord has spoken to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not muster, nor shall you take their, you shall not number, nor shall you take their muster among the sons of Israel. But you shall appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, over all its furnishings, over all that belongs to it, 
They shall carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings. They shall take care of it. They shall also camp around the tabernacle. Next hour, when we get into chapter 3, we'll show you the diagram of the camp and where each of these battle units is positioned and where the Levites are positioned in the camp. So when the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down. When the tabernacle encamps, the Levites shall set it up. But the layman who comes near shall be put to death. That is, everybody that's not the outsider, everybody that's not from Levi. If somebody shows up from the tribe of Reuben and says, hey, I'll help you pitch that tent, no thanks. Okay? You'll be struck dead because you're not from the tribe of Levi. This is going to be fun, moving through and talked about how fun it is to teach Genesis when I've got a guy named Adam here in the auditorium or, or teaching Exodus when Moses is sitting here on the back row or now I've got a Reuben as I work my way through the, the tribes. Get to pick out these random names at random. All right. So yeah, the, the outsider, the layman. If you're not from Levi, you're not uh, going to be coming near the tent. And the sons of Israel shall camp each man by his own camp, each man by his own standard, according to their armies. Again, follow the colors. That's what the standard is about. You have the standard up on the pole. You have the, the ensign that you're following. Follow the, the, this is a military formation. According to the standard, according to their armies. This is a military march from Sinai to Israel. And they think it's an 11-day march. They're going to find out it's a 40-year march. Okay, But as of now, it's an 11-day march as they're structured, as they're in formation, as they're ready to go forth and go to war. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony so that there will be no wrath on the congregation of the sons of Israel. Levites shall keep charge of the tabernacle of the testimony. So the sons of Israel did according to all which the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. All right. Now I lost my footnote. I'm going to have to conclude here. Where did I lose my footnote? I said, I, I can see that. There. Pathetic. That tiny little asterisk is a footnote. All right. Everything I gave you this hour, um, I've adapted it from three or four different sources. This has been a theory that's been working its way through for some time now. Adapted from R.E.D. Clark, last name Clark, initials R.E.D., the large numbers of the Old Testament, Journal of the Transaction of the Victoria Institute. That goes back to 1955, okay? I have this in PDF if you want to read it for yourself. Also, J.W. Wenham, large numbers in the Old Testament. This was a journal article in 1967, published by the Tyndale Bulletin, volume 18. Also, Titus Kennedy spoke about this when he was here and did an uh, archaeological presentation. In fact, we had him for a whole week. He did an archaeology conference for us years ago. Titus Kennedy wrote an article called The Population of the Israelites in the Exodus and the Wandering. It is not yet published. I can't give you, I've, I promised. I've got a draft and I promised I wouldn't give out copies. But it's supposed to be a book. It is an unpublished paper. It is a forthcoming book. It's been forthcoming since 2016. So I told Titus, all right, I won't give out copies, but I'm going to teach it. Because I think Titus really did well putting all this together. Most of what you see here with the battle units and the, the Elohim, most of that was from Wenham. The theory itself came from Clark. And Clark actually did a marvelous job 
Because the very first uh, attempt to do this, as I pointed out, the very first attempt to do this was to take to take some of these numbers and, and not break them up. So like with Reuben, just immediately take 46 and make those the chiefs and then have five as the companies. With 46 chiefs over five companies, that's a lot of chiefs over a small number of, of companies. Why do you have so many? And then it also didn't match. Some of the other, like 30, 59 chiefs over three companies, and that was a problem. And so Clark actually was, was brilliant because Clark said, you know what? Not all 46 of those are chiefs. Maybe only 45 of those are chiefs. He said, what if the number of the hundreds is always over a thousand? Then one of those LF actually is a thousand. The other LFs are actually chiefs. And so coming up with 45 and 1500 or 44 and 2500 as the case may be. That was part of Clark's um, insight. I thought Clark did real well with that. And then Wenham, he's the father. There's, there's two Wenhams, uh, father and son. And this is the older one. You might have some Exodus and Numbers commentaries uh, written by the younger Wenham, and that's fine because uh, he quotes his dad a lot when he's citing some of these, some of these things. All right, so if you want a Tyndale Bulletin, that one I do have as a PDF. The, the Victoria Institute, I have that as a PDF. Um, the Titus Kennedy, we're just going to wait until his book gets published. I don't know how long I can wait. I don't know how much patience Titus thinks I have. All right. So that is a lot of work. And if your head is spinning, I don't blame you. Because this is something I've been working on since 2016 and, and, and when Titus first published that paper is when I first heard of the theory. And I've been working on this for six years now, seven years, working on this, this concept of the big numbers and numbers. And now you get it in one fell swoop on a Sunday morning in February. All right, well, let's close with prayer. Father, I thank you for this day and I thank you for this study. And I thank you for scholars, Father. These men have studied, they've spent their lifetime poring over manuscripts and going blind trying to read these jots and tittles in the, the Hebrew manuscripts. I thank you, Father, for the, uh, the priority that, uh, that good men have when they have reverence before the Scriptures. And they're not casting doubt on the numbers, they're trying to understand what the numbers truly are as, as they reconcile the different passages together. Likewise, Father, I didn't even mention the, the 600,000 troops and, and only two midwives. Boy, they, they were busy in uh, trying for just two poor midwives to, to deliver all these babies. But Father, uh, I thank you for the, uh, the privilege that it is to study the show ourselves approved. I pray that you continue to bless these studies and continue to bless our reading as we work our way through Genesis to Revelation over 52 weeks. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.